Elizabethtown College history professor David S. Brown is the author of a new book about former President Andrew Jackson. Brown writes that he is the first president to be born in a log cabin, to live beyond the Appalachians, and to rule, so he swore, in the name of the people. The title of the book is The First Populace, The Defiant Life of Andrew Jackson. He was president for two terms, eight years, from 1829 to 1837. Jackson, in his lifetime, was a jurist, a general, a congressman, a senator, and America's seventh president. Professor David Brown, what is a populist? A populist is someone who um, is going to put the idea of democracy and popular appeal, popular democracy, over perhaps um, a, a more reflective or deliberative approach to it could be governance, uh, it could be um, uh, it could be art, uh, it could be lots of things. Um, populism is something that I, I think is probably pretty deep in the American DNA. Why does the front of the book say that Andrew Jackson is a, led a defiant life? Right. So, so Jackson, um, I think, might agree with that in certain respects. Uh, I think that this is somebody who liked opposition, needed opposition. I think was most effective when he could identify an enemy. And so uh, throughout his life, um, before his presidency, uh, during and after his presidency, uh, he seemed to, to thrive off of uh, contention, off of adversity. Um, it seemed to focus him. Um, he was someone who could, um, uh, could um, uh, conjure up uh, a great deal of, of animosity towards others and um, in return uh, had that animosity come back to him. But as I mentioned, it seemed to focus him. You know, you've written a number of books, including one on Henry Adams, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Richard Hofstetter. Uh, why Andrew Jackson? What led you to this, con you know, compared to the mm -hmm. others? Well, you know, I was, I was writing uh, a book you mentioned on, on Henry Adams, and I was, I was really thinking about uh, the 19th century and what a vital century it was to America. And, you know, I decided to, to, to call that book um, The Last American Aristocrat. And it seemed to me that, you know, populism, popular democracy in the 19th century, uh, it was such a, such a vital feature of American life. Um, you know, maybe in 19th century France, it was the emergence of the bourgeoisie. In America, the 19th century, I think it was this westward drift. I think it was this emerging popular democracy. And so in looking at Henry Adams um, as, as, you know, kind of coming out of that ducal Adams quasi-aristocratic family, that was, that was really the early 19th century. But that was changing by Adams' time very much so. And finishing that project, I, I was interested in, in looking at um, Andrew Jackson, someone who I think embodied, um, uh, didn't create it, but he sort of embodied the emergence of that system of popular politics, which so, I think, profoundly displaced the Adams family. You know, if you come to Washington, there's the Hay Adams Hotel, and about 100 steps uh, closer to the White House is the Andrew Jackson statue. Yes. Why do you it, think... Go ahead. No, it's a, it's a great observation. Um, our statue culture is, is interesting. Uh, we know Andrew Jackson uh, in many respects. One is for the bank war. Uh, and, and in Nashville, there's a, a branch of the Federal Reserve, and it's not very far uh, from uh, a Jackson statue. And, of course, Jackson was a great enemy of that type of financial uh, centralization. In your acknowledgments in the back of the book, you say that your interest in Jackson started in graduate school. Mm -hmm. Why? So I was looking for a project. Um, I was at an Ohio institution, the University of Toledo, and uh, I wanted to do something, something local. Um, and so I fell upon the Whig Party uh, in, in Ohio. Uh, and the Whigs uh, came about in the early 1830s as an opposition party to Andrew Jackson, to the Jacksonians. 
And that was my real introduction to the Jacksonians and to Jacksonian politics. Um, so it, it came out of graduate school, um, but it's something uh, you know that, that, that's always you know kind of there. If you if you study American politics, then issues, questions of of populism are always going to be there, and you, you you can't you just can't get away from looking at the 19th century, and you can't get away from somebody like Andrew Jackson. What does it mean to you that a portrait of Andrew Jackson? has been in the Oval Office for the following four presidents, Lyndon Johnson, Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, and Donald Trump. It tells me that, that despite Jackson's, um, um, uh, well, the, the controversial um, uh, uh, nature uh, of his presidency, that he has been, mm, up until recent times, last couple of decades, a fairly ecumenical political figure, meaning, of course, that the Republicans and Democrats have, have or had, in some sense, both, you know, sort of uh, agreed that, that Jackson was a national hero. In other words, you know, kind of kind of where Jefferson went and kind of where Washington and, 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 uh, and Lincoln went as well. Not, not, not so much Democrats or Republicans, but, but these figures had become national figures. Jackson, um, Jackson had become that. When he was 21, you say in your book that somebody named Wait Still Avery and Jackson got into it over what? Jackson thought that he had been um, um, uh, kind of attacked in court, showed up by uh, an older, more savvy lawyer. And, and in fact, he had. And, and so Jackson wanted to um, assert the fact that, that, that he was a gentleman. And one of the ways to do this was to, to challenge um, someone to a duel if, if in fact, um, you thought that there was grounds. So, so Jackson turns this, um, you know, basically, uh, you know, a kind of a kind of retort in court, uh, a minor embarrassment, into an opportunity to to challenge this this gentleman and to um, uh, to face him down. Um, you know, they actually don't fire shots at each other. That was that was something that um, uh, the handlers had taken care of beforehand. But I think for the first time, it asserted that that Jackson was a gentleman. Uh, he, he he had. He had attempted to do this in other ways, um, purchasing land. He had begun to purchase uh, enslaved people. Um, uh, he was looking to, uh, to, uh, to involve himself in the military, uh, the militia in Tennessee. Um, and the duel was all part of that kind of, 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 of growing up process for Jackson, to be taken seriously as a gentleman. Avery was 47. Jackson was 21. Yes. Uh, one could argue that, that there was not... Uh, a lot of honor in, in, in Jackson um, pushing for this duel. Um, uh, Avery was also uh, an accomplished figure, um, and, and perhaps for that reason, you know, all the more, um, uh, you know, made Jackson all the more eager to challenge him. Jackson may have also had a sense that he could get by with this without there actually being bloodshed, without actually, you know, firing at Avery or having Avery fire at him. Um, one can speculate if, if it didn't turn out that way, if in fact um, uh, they did actually go through with the duel and fired each other, not just up into the air. And if Jackson had killed Avery, then perhaps that might have, that might have nipped Jackson's budding career um, right there. How does it turn out that you agree not to point the gun at each other? Handlers, um, um, uh, you know, you've got seconds, and these gentlemen are working behind the scenes. Um, uh, it, it, was, it was pretty evident that, that in, in this case, uh, the offense really wasn't that considerable, and, and, and neither man was really looking uh, for a, um, uh, you know, to, to risk their lives. And so it, it probably would not have been very difficult in this case for the seconds to have reached an agreement that, that both gentlemen had, um, had, uh, had recognized the, um, the integrity of the other, and therefore to, to go through with the protocol to meet, but, but when it was time to fire, both had agreed to fire up into the, uh, into the sky. Before we go on, uh, Elizabethtown College is where? It is in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. How long have you been there? I've just finished my 25th year at this college. What do you teach? I teach courses in American history. And as someone who went to Wright State University for your bachelor's in Ohio in 90, University of Akron in 92 for your master's, and the University of Toledo in 95 for your Ph.D., why did you move to Pennsylvania? 
I moved to Pennsylvania because it was a job. Um, it was a, a tenure track position. It was offered to me, and uh, I, I was—I think I was very fortunate to get it. What was the first thing you wrote in your dissertation? What was that about? The dissertation was on the Whig Party in Ohio. Did you write a book on um, uh, Thomas Jefferson? I wrote a. Um, uh, I, I was still in graduate school and um, uh, signed a contract to write a reference book, an encyclopedia on Thomas Jefferson. It's. I think you said in your book that uh, Andrew Jackson knew Thomas Jefferson or was alive yes. with Thomas Jefferson. How well did they know each other, and what did they think of one another? Uh, they didn't know each other terribly well, but they did know each other. Um, uh, neither was particularly impressed with the other. When Jefferson was the vice president, that, of course, made him president of the U.S. Senate. Uh, Jackson was briefly in the Senate as a young man. Um, uh, and uh, uh, Jefferson thought that he was erratic, that he was um, voluble, emotional, and prone to anger easily. Um, Jackson thought that he uh, was being held back because of his, because of Jackson's um, friendship with Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr had been Thomas Jefferson's vice president for one term. There was a bit of a, uh, 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 a falling out. Um, Burr is probably mostly known for the Burr affair, um, uh, the, 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 the possible attempt to try to um, you know, sever a small empire uh, in, in, in the Southwest for himself and maybe a rogue army. And uh, uh, on several occasions, um, uh, he had um, Burr had passed through Nashville and had contracted with Jackson for um, for supports for supplies. Jackson thinking that the U.S. government, that the Jefferson administration, um, wants to see this happen. Uh, so he was a bit fooled there. So because of his closeness with Aaron Burr, um, uh, first Jefferson and then Jefferson's successor James Madison in the presidency. They seem to be very reticent um, to to embrace Andrew Jackson, and it would really only be with uh, the War of 1812 and a, a slew of, of retirements that that the Jackson was brought um, out of the Tennessee militia and into the regular army. What was the War of 1812 about? War of 1812. Um, it's it, it's its focus is really. Um, in Europe, uh, the playing out of the French Revolution and the Napoleonic conflicts that uh, that ensue um, in the United States, uh, it was uh, the United States really um, looking to, um, uh, to to do a few things. I think, in part, uh, to move against um, Native Americans in the West, um, to uh, assert or reassert independence um, uh, against British uh, rule of the seas. Um, British confiscation, kidnappings of American uh, citizens, um, uh, sailors on the high seas, and um, uh, uh, an effort, I think, on the part of the country to begin to um, uh, uh, really uh, develop uh, an industrial base um, uh, and also begin to move towards internal improvements, uh, canals, um, uh, macadamized roads, and the war helped to, to sort of generate a really tremendous amount of energy in which all of these things begin to begin to happen. Your brain needs support and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Jackson was president from 1829 to 1837, but when he was 36 years old in 1803, there was a duel with somebody named Severe. Who was Severe and what was the story behind the duel? Yeah, Severe was a um, uh, pretty much a, a frontier hero in in Tennessee. Uh, he was an older man, and I, I think I think at the nub of it, uh, I, I think of it not not too differently than I do, say, uh, the very famous duel between Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. Um, I, I think I think at heart, I think I think New York was too small of a state to hold the aspirations of both of those men. 
Tennessee was even smaller. Um, Jackson and Sevier, they kept knocking heads against each other. Uh, Sevier, the older lion, Jackson, the rising cub. Um, but whether it was for you know uh, civic appointments or um, martial appointments, you know who who would, who would head the militia in Tennessee? They they kept um, uh, they kept finding themselves kind of pressed up against each other. Uh, Jackson Jackson was not one, at least at that point in his life, to defer um, uh, necessarily to 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 more accomplished people uh, or or to his seniors. Um, uh, they uh, they did get into a fracas. Um, it was supposed to be a duel, but really it was just a kind of a melee. Um, uh, like I said, I, I think the origins go really into the, the question of, of, of Tennessee politics and opportunities. But on the surface, uh, uh, Severe had, had made you know um, um, uh, some some unseemly comments about Andrew Jackson. Uh, uh, in Jackson's marriage, Jackson's wife, um, Jackson's wife uh, was actually married um, when she then married Andrew Jackson. She thought that her husband had gotten a divorce, but he had not. And in fact, they had been living basically as a common law couple. And uh, Severe uh, brought that up uh, in a public fashion, and, uh, and, and Jackson challenged him. Um, uh, Severe seemed to be playing, you know, kind of cat and mouse with Jackson, um, uh, very eager, so he said in correspondence, to, to, to engage the younger man, but, but kept putting it off and putting it off. Uh, finally, they did meet, and as I mentioned, it was a bit of a fracas. It was, it was chaos. Um, uh, they, they draw arms on each other uh, before the duel can even be set up. Um, uh, the seconds, the handlers, everyone's pulling out guns and weapons. Uh, to make a long story short, nobody was, nobody was killed. Uh, and in fact, both parties ended up coming back to, uh, to Nashville together. Well, you quote uh, Andrew Jackson saying, to all who shall see these presents greeting, know ye that I, Andrew Jackson, do pronounce, publish, and declare the world that His Excellency John Severe Esquire, Captain General and Commander-in-Chief of the land and naval forces within the state of Tennessee, is a base coward and a paltroon. Yes. How strong is that in those days? That's very strong. Um, paltroon um, is, 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 I think, really the trip word there. And if you call somebody that, you are, you are asking for a duel. Or you're asking for the other person to 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 uh, to surrender to you, basically. So um, it's a code word, and if that's if that's used, then you know that the person really means business. Um, so there, there's 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 a degree of language. Um, uh, you know, there, there, there's there's escalation, and and basically Jackson goes for the jugular when he uses those words. He wants to. He wants to uh, engage in a duel, um, and probably at that time did want to engage in a duel. Didn't want the handlers to clean it up. When he was thirty-six years old and involved in all this with Severe, and there is a town now in Tennessee called Sevierville. Um, mm-hmm. What were the two men doing? I'm sorry. Um, could you ask that again? At, at the time of the duel, what were what was John Severe doing, and what was Andrew Jackson doing? So both of them actually, you know, kind of shared a position. Um, uh, as I mentioned, there was a competition uh, throughout their, their public careers, and um, um, uh, they, they, they both had a piece of the Tennessee uh, militia. Um, at, at one time, there was only one commander of the militia, um, but but um, uh, it, it was determined that um, uh, you know, severe in East Tennessee, um, he should essentially be given his province. But but Nashville in West Tennessee and Jackson is being the embodiment of that. Jackson he should he should be able to have part of that commission as well. And so it was split up and so they both had a large piece of regional piece of, of the Tennessee militia. Um, Jackson, you know, also uh, was uh, was a justice of the peace. And uh, uh, Severe was, was uh, you know, eager to remind him of that, that the duels, uh, in, you know, that, 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 that the laws in Tennessee, they, they prohibited dueling. And that wasn't it ironic that the Jackson, who, who sat on the Supreme Court of the state, was so willing to, to elide the law, to break the law, and engage in a flagrantly illegal activity. What was uh, Andrew Jackson's image in the state of Tennessee around that same time? Or did he have one in the whole state? Uh, I, I would say that his image 
was was not um, uh, was not as high profile as Severe's. Uh, Severe was a frontier legend. Uh, people knew Severe from the um, uh, the American Revolution. Um, Jackson had fought in the American Revolution as well. He was he was a teenager. He was actually a POW, but didn't have the reputation of Severe. Um, Jackson was known very well in Nashville, in that area, um, less in the East, uh, probably not uh, in, until. You know, the War of 1812, uh, would Jackson become a, um, uh, a figure really known throughout the Southwest? I'm, as you know, I'm concentrating on the duels, and you have on Chapter 11, the duelist. Who was the duelist? This is Charles Dickinson. Uh, Dickinson was um, uh, a bit younger than Andrew Jackson, and Dickinson was reputed to be one of the great shots in the state of Tennessee. And in 1806, Andrew Jackson killed Dickinson in a duel. Um, uh, some people say that Jackson had engaged in hundreds of duels. That's that's overstatement. That's not true. Uh, Dickinson is the one man that we know that Andrew Jackson did kill in a duel. How did it happen? Oh, this is about a horse race. Uh, Jackson uh, had a, uh, um, uh, a stallion, um, Truxton. And was going to race um, a horse owned by Joseph Irwin. Irwin's horse came up lame. Irwin had to pay the default eight hundred dollars. Um, back then, you know, lots of paper currency, some worth more than other others. And uh, uh, when, he, when, he, when, he, when he paid the notes, um, initially they weren't in the the proper currency that they had agreed to. Jackson brought that to Irwin's attention, and, and Irwin he 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 did the right thing. Um, so there was no problem there, apparently. Irwin's son-in-law, Charles Dickinson, got involved in this. And um, uh, he, uh, he uh, uh, approached Jackson through a, a friend. Dickinson asked a friend, uh, you know, uh, see what Jackson's problem is with these notes. Jackson said to this, this man um, by the name of Swan that um, there's no problem here. But yes, the, the, the initial notes, they, they weren't what we agreed to. Swan proceeded to go back and, and, and say to Irwin and, and Dickinson that um, you know, Jackson was uh, Jackson was complaining, and, 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 and Jackson had a problem with the notes, and he was he was saying things publicly about this. Jackson then called Swan a liar. Swan then said that he he will challenge Jackson to a duel. Jackson refused to 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 uh, uh, to see Swan to regard Swan as a gentleman. And so he could he could not duel Swan. Instead, Jackson, who had a colleague with him, um, went to a tavern where Swan was, and um, came inside and saw Swan there, and proceeded to to cane him, to beat him. Um, this precipitates uh, a duel with Charles Dickinson. Um, Dickinson also had, on at least two occasions, made some comments about Jackson's marriage, not unlike John Severe. Um, Jackson challenges uh, Dickinson to a duel, uses the aforementioned word poltroon, and um, they, they, they cross state lines into uh, Kentucky, and it's there where Andrew Jackson uh, kills Charles Dickinson. Talk about the language of the time and compared to today. Back then, you say that uh, Andrew Jackson wrote about Dickinson, called him worthless, drunken, blackguard scoundrel. Scoundrel. Yeah. Um, it seems like, as you read your book, that uh, Andrew Jackson had a lot of strong things to say about a lot of things. Absolutely. Um, whether he was talking about um, um, political enemies, um, men he was looking to duel, um, even institutions, how he would sometimes refer, for example, to the Bank of the United States of America or to the Supreme Court. Uh, the language could be could be heavy. Um, uh, some of it is sincere. I, I think as he matriculated higher into politics, I, I think some of it was also a bit theatrical. When was Jackson first hit by a bullet in all of these duels? That would have been the Dickinson duel in 1806. Uh, he, Jackson recognized that, that Dickinson was the superior shot. And so Jackson's strategy was not to fire first. Um, I, I suppose the overriding hope is that uh, Dickinson, not knowing that Jackson was going to fire first, that, that, that Dickinson would fire quickly and, and perhaps miss his target. 
However, Jackson uh, did understand that, that, that he, uh, he was going to present himself as a target and he might, in fact, be hit. And, and that's what happened. Uh, he was hit uh, in the chest, in the breastbone, probably knocked out a couple of, um, a couple of ribs, uh, but he was left standing. Uh, Dickinson was uh, incredulous. He couldn't, he couldn't believe it. He thought initially he had missed because Jackson was still standing there. Uh, he had to, to toe the mark. Jackson aimed and Jackson pulled the trigger, but there was a, a misfire. Um, and, and so uh, uh, there was some you know, feeling later on that at that point, Jackson should have said, well, okay, you know, um, let's just call it the duel. But Jackson uh, uh, demanded that, in fact, you know, he, he, he would get his shot. And so uh, he pulled the hammer back again and he drilled Dickinson, flush in the abdomen, and uh, a few hours later that evening, uh, Dickinson died. By the way, how long did that particular bullet that Dickinson fired stay in Jackson's body? That bullet stayed in Jackson for the rest of his life. Was it? I <clears throat> excuse me. I heard somebody refer to the fact that the bullet itself splintered, and that it would be it was treated almost like shrapnel. Was there ever any uh, attempt to get any of that out of his body? Uh, not really, not that bullet. Um, it was uh, it was uh, very close to the heart, and surgeons just didn't want to go in there. Uh, Jackson, Jackson, in in uh, a second, you, you can't really call it a duel, but a, a real fracas. Um, a few years later, he he did uh, he did take a, a bullet in the arm, and that was later removed during his presidency. He was thirty nine when the Dickinson. Um, when he killed Dickinson, what, do you remember what he was doing at the time? And did that have any public impact on his image in the state of Tennessee? Uh, he was a public figure. Um, uh, there was the militia position, uh, for example. Um, it, um, in some respects, it, it had a, uh, it had a, um, a negative impact. Uh, there were people who thought that, um, uh, that Jackson was bloodthirsty uh, there are people who thought that that this that this duel um, was unnecessary. Uh, Charles Dickinson um, uh, was a, a lawyer. Um, uh, in some respects, uh, you know, kind of a dandy and kind of kind of arrogant, but had lots of friends. Um, uh, the Supreme Court Justice John Marshall was someone who um, had uh, had tutored him, um, uh, you know, years earlier. So there were some connections there. And uh, after the duel, uh, a couple of the Tennessee newspapers. Um, uh, put out um, uh, black morning uh, bunting in print uh, on on on, uh, on the pages of of, um, of the periodicals, paid for by you know, uh, people in Tennessee, Nashvilleans, who who were who were mourning the death of, of Dickinson, and um, um, uh, therefore vicariously uh, criticizing Jackson for for killing this good man. His reputation did take a bit of a dip. Uh, by the way, you mentioned uh, Supreme Court justice. How many? And I'm jumping ahead, but I'll come back to more duels. How many justices during his eight years as president was he able to appoint? Jackson appointed six justices. How does that compare with other presidents? Obviously, Washington would have appointed the most because Washington had to appoint the entire first Supreme Court. Um, uh, interestingly enough. William Howard Taft also appointed, I believe, six. And unlike Jackson, who had two terms, Taft did it in a, a single term. Um, but, but, but yeah, to have um, uh, uh, six appointments in eight years uh, is, uh, is a, a very high figure that, that very few presidents um, uh, could hope to achieve. Who appointed Tawney to the chief justice job after John Marshall stepped down? Jackson did that. Um, Jackson, as we discussed, uh, could uh, could um, could be a great hater and could inspire great hate in others. Uh, on the other hand, uh, he was very close to, he was very tight, and he was very protective of his friends. Tawney had been a loyalist. Um, Tawney had, um, uh, I, th I think, done most of the writing uh, for Jackson's uh, iconic bank veto message. Um, when, when, when Jackson was looking to finally kill off the bank and find uh, a secretary of the treasurer, uh, treasury who, who would help him do that, um, he, he appointed Tawney to that position. And 
as you mentioned, when Marshall dies, um, Jackson is going to, again, stand by Tawney, um, move him up in the system, and he becomes the, the Supreme Court justice. But Dred Scott, the decision that Chief Justice Tawney was responsible for came some years later. Did, yes. did he have any decisions while Jackson was president that were controversial? The decisions that, that, that the Tawney court will make are, are going to be seen as um, decisions that are going to generally favor um, uh, the South, generally favor an agrarian states' rights um, perspective, uh, the plantocracy. And so Jackson, in appointing Tawney, um, and, and doing some other things when he was president, you know, uh, coveting, for example, uh, Texas, where, where slavery would begin to expand, um, recognizing uh, the nation state of Texas in the last days of his presidency, that action combined, for example, with, with the Tawney Court, um, uh, and also uh, combined with other things, you know, for example, um, you know, having a, um, uh, a postal system, which would, um, uh, you know, not allow abolitionist literature to, uh, uh, to circulate in the South in violation, you know, of, of, of the First Amendment. Um, these are all things that, um, that historians look at, and they point to, to, to the Tawney Court and say, um, you know, it really had Jackson's stamp on it. It had the stamp of, of somebody who, who was interested, despite the fact that he very much viewed himself as a nationalist, uh, but someone who did operate from a, a Southern persuasion. Go back to the beginning of when you thought you wanted to do Andrew Jackson as a book. How did that process start? The process started with me beginning to to read Jackson's um, primary source material, um, his letters, for example. There are two there are two collections, um, and and then um, also looking at the, the collections of people who were uh, who were close to Jackson, um, family members, um, politicians, um, Martin Van Buren's memoirs, for example. And beginning to to, to formulate, um, you know, you know, kind of a notion, uh, a feel for for Jackson the individual, um, Jackson the family man, Jackson the politician, and of course uh, not just the life but the times as well. Um, uh, at that point, um, I, I then also began to to dip into a lot of the secondary source material, some of which I was familiar with. Uh, as, as I mentioned, as we talked about earlier, I'd done work on Jackson in that period in the Whigs uh, when I was in graduate school. And, and since graduate school, uh, I, I, I teach a course on the topic and stayed up with historiography. So I, I began to immerse myself in the primary and the secondary literature. When did you start this? I started the project uh, in January of 2017. And how much research time did you spend before you began writing? Probably about nearly three years. Can you remember as the process unfolded uh, how you, when you did or how you changed your mind about what you thought Andrew Jackson was about? I think that was was early. Um, reading through Jackson's public papers and reading through Jackson's correspondence, uh, it began to dawn on me that, that that Jackson was 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 not merely this frontier ruffian, but he was also very savvy, very very canny. Um, uh, he had two brothers. He was the youngest. His mother saw something in him, a mental spark or something. And so it was Andrew Jackson, of all of the Jackson boys, who was predestined, supposedly, to go to the pulpit. His mother wanted him to become a, a Presbyterian theologian, because that would require a certain amount of education, of learning. And she thought that, that, that he, more so than his brothers, had that. In these public papers, um, Jackson could really frame an argument. Uh, Jackson could really, really play uh, you know, fast and loose with details. Um, that's not always edifying, but it takes, it takes a, you know, a, a certain temperament, a certain mind to be able to do that. And so, so, so Jackson was, was much more of a thinking creature than uh, I'd anticipated going into the project. You say that his closest compeers are Theodore Roosevelt and Richard Nixon. Where do you get that idea? Uh, I think with, with with Nixon, what jumped out at me was that you know Nixon obviously had um, 
uh, an enemies list, um, you know, whether they were you know, journalists or, or politicians, um, uh, the, the people he thought that were a bit out to get him. With Jackson, Jackson had that sense of paranoia. Jackson also had his own enemies list. His his was 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 mental. He carried it up in his head. But as I mentioned before, um, uh, he was was very effective with it. Probably more effective than Nixon. It helped to focus his thinking. Uh, the comparison with with uh, Theodore Roosevelt is uh, I see in both men um, this 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 you know kind of desire to have an aspirational presidency to do great things to be. Uh, significance. Um, both men had, had had quite the ego. Both men, I, I think, had a good sense of of their popularity, uh, how much they could get uh, away with. Um, Roosevelt. We don't, we don't think of, of Theodore Roosevelt um, uh, uh, in the in the in the same type of um, you know contestation that we do Andrew Jackson. But there there was a side of of, of, of Theodore Roosevelt. Um, uh, he could be very diplomatic, uh, but he could also be be very pointed, very direct, and 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 a real savvy political manipulator. You you can't get that high up in the system uh, without some of those skills. And I, I think I, I see a bit of an overlap there, um, even temperamentally between the two. Um, Roosevelt, you know, East Coast, but but very much interested in portraying himself as, as someone from the West, a hunter. You say he might be paired with uh, Douglas MacArthur. Why? MacArthur was regarded by some as a um, as, as a very cavalier, too off the cuff general, someone who had aspirations, maybe beyond um, the Constitution. Uh, I'm not sure that's fair or not, but but Franklin Roosevelt uh, thought that 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 was the case, and uh, he thought that uh, you know in a, in a famous phrase that Douglas MacArthur was the most dangerous man in America. These were words that Andrew Jackson had heard when he was president, that, that, that he, that Jackson, was this military hero that some saw as a chieftain. Um, people worried about his popularity as a military man and whether he could parlay that into political success. But then maybe when he achieved political success, then he would he would elide the Constitution. He would... Um, he would make himself really above the Supreme Court, above Congress. And in that sense, I, I, I think that, 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 that the Franklin Roosevelt saw a little bit of a military chieftain in, in Douglas MacArthur. When he was 46, back to the duels, Thomas Hart Benton. This was in 1813. What was he doing then, and how did he have a duel with Thomas Hart Benton? This was the War of 1812, and uh, and and Jackson had just returned to Nashville. Uh, he had been in Natchez, Mississippi, with an army. On the way back, there was uh, a, a brigadier, a, a brigadier inspector, Billy Carroll, who got close with Jackson. He was a young man. Jackson liked his company. This aroused jealousy among some of the young officers including one Jesse Benton. Jesse Benton challenges Carroll to a duel um, uh, on, on some trumped-up issue about lack of respect. Carroll goes to Jackson and asks him to be his second. Jackson says, oh, come on, I, I'm, I'm too old for this. Um, and uh, uh, he tries to patch things up, but he can't do it. So, so he incautiously agrees to, to serve as the second. The duel goes off. Um, and, and the bottom line is Jesse Benton gets hit in the bottom. Um, this was not life-threatening, but it was embarrassing. Not long after that, Jackson gets a, a, a letter from Jesse Benton's brother, Thomas Hart Benton, um, who says that Jackson had no business being part of this, that there's a war on, we should not be fighting each other, and that Jackson should have, have, have prevailed his opinion as the calm, older man. Well, calm, that's a matter of perspective. Benton also said that Jackson had conducted the uh, affair of honor in an unfair manner. And he said that um, he was not seeking a duel with Jackson, but, but he, would not, um, uh, he would not go through with one if, if Jackson preferred. 
Jackson replied back, defending himself and saying that he too was not seeking a duel, but if it's what Benton wanted, uh, well, he would he would take up his his pistol and, and do what was right. Um, this is all going to lead to a fracas between the two men. Um, uh, Jackson gets wind that Benton had been had been publicly saying that Jackson uh, 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 should have uh, had no business engaging in, in this this uh, this uh, this this, uh, this duel that he should have ended the the, uh, the duel, um, but uh, but it had let things go on too long. Jackson declared that since he had been publicly impugned, the next time that he saw Benton, he was going to horse with him. Um, he learns that that, uh, that Benton is in Nashville, staying at the, the city hotel. Jackson, um, saying that he must pick up his mail, leaves his home, um, and uh, it's about 12 miles east of Nashville, and with a friend, um, goes to, to Nashville, puts himself up at the Nashville, um, Nashville Inn, and uh, collects his mail, and notices that Thomas Hart Benton is conspicuously in the doorway of his own hotel, and walks over, and uh, they begin to uh, they begin to to fight. Um, Jackson pulls out a gun. Um, he says Dickinson was reaching for his. Who knows at this point? When Jackson pulls out his gun, um, uh, he uh, he's not aware that Jesse Benton was also there. And Jesse Benton fires shots. Jackson is hit in the left shoulder and in the left arm, and uh, Benton is able to to make his escape. Um, both Bentons do. Um, there's a bit of fighting outside, but but they're able to 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 to, to leave uh, the scene. Jackson is is brought um, uh, to the inn, and uh, rumor has it that he bled through a couple of mattresses. Um, doctors were there uh, and and recommended that the arm be amputated. Jackson refused that, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the bullet's going to stay in his arm until 1932. That's uh, during his presidency, when it had moved uh, enough away from the bone, close enough to the skin, that a surgeon felt that he could he could get it out and did so. Just to chat, you said 1932, you meant 1832? Yes, thank you. Um, was it, do I understand this right? Jesse Benton, Thomas Hart Benton's brother, is the one that fired into his arm? Yes, fired two shots. So it wasn't Thomas Hart Benton that shot him? That's right. And how do you, I mean, in your research, how do you carry all that lead in your body from the first shot from Charles Dickinson to the second shot from Jesse Benton and not have it affect your body? Well, there are people who argue that it did affect uh, the body, that um, uh, there there might be, um, you know, several reasons for Jackson's uh, intemperate actions and perhaps um, uh, the fact that he was, as you put it, carrying so much lead in his body, um, perhaps that did have an impact. Uh, he, he was a temperamental man, and uh, we know that he did um, suffer physically um, uh, for a number of reasons, but, but one uh, w- w- would be uh, the wounds. Um, uh, he lived into his 70s. Uh, he was at that time uh, the oldest president, and, and these, were, these were old wounds by the time that he reached that office. I want to make sure that our listeners know that the book is a complete bi- biography of Andrew Jackson. We're just concentrating on some of these areas because we only have an hour to talk to uh, David Brown, who is at Elizabethtown College. When you are in the classroom, how often do you teach Andrew Jackson? Every fall, I teach a course on U.S. history uh, to 1877, and there's always one day that is set aside for uh, the Jacksonian period. What's the reaction of students when you talk about Jackson? Uh, I, I think um, I think they're bemused. Um, uh, they they might know a little bit about Jackson, but to go into to some of the detail about the personality, um, about um, well about the duels, for example, um, it, it, I think I think I think for them it's just astounding. That, that somebody like that uh, could, um, uh, you know, could could be president. Uh, that uh, that uh, that this could be um, for much of our history, uh, you know, a, a heroic figure. Has anybody, by the way, ever done a book just on the number of duels he's had and those beyond the ones that you write about? I don't believe that there's a book uh, simply on on, on Jackson's duels. Um, there is, um, you know, uh, a good book written oh, about 20 years ago 
uh, Affairs of Honor um, by a, a, a historian, and she looks at, at dueling culture. Let's move to when he was 66 and the story about Robert Randolph in 1833 and Richard Lawrence. Sure. Um, so Jackson, um, as John Quincy had uh, Adams put it, uh, sort of created a presidential history by being the first chief executive to have his nose pulled. Um, uh, yeah. Randolph had been a, a purser in the Navy. Um, uh, he had um, been caught stealing, and, and Jackson had okayed his dismissal from the service. Jackson was in Frederick, uh, Virginia. Um, uh, there was a ceremony there in regards to, to Martha Washington, um, and uh, uh, he was sitting there with a, 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 you know, a couple of handlers, and um, uh, Randolph approaches. And um, uh, Jackson thinks that he's going to um, uh, shake his hand. Randolph is, is, is taking off uh, uh, his gloves. And uh, in fact, um, uh, Randolph reaches over and he grasps Jackson by the nose and, and he tweaks it. And, and apparently it, it produced bloodshed. Uh, that's emblematic in the sense that I think Quincy Adams is right. I think that Jackson's probably the first president of his nose tweaked. But in a sense, it would be Andrew Jackson, uh, such a such a combative figure, uh, someone who, who who doesn't back down. Again, someone who 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 made a lot of enemies. Um, uh, the second gentleman that, that you mentioned um, tried to assassinate Andrew Jackson. Uh, this is on the grounds of the U.S. Capitol. Jackson was attending the funeral. Of a, uh, of a U.S. congressman, uh, I believe from South Carolina, and uh, the ceremony is over. Jackson is vacating the building. Uh, again, there's quite a crowd there, and this gentleman he approaches Jackson and uh, it pulls out um, a gun and fires, but it doesn't go off. He then pulls out a second pistol and and and, and he fires, but it doesn't go off uh, either. Um, for for people who 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 want to see Andrew Jackson. As a kind of an otherworldly figure, there's the fact that he survived duels. There's the fact that he, at the Battle of New Orleans, um, uh, had a tremendous victory over the British, where, where his side took very few casualties, and, and, and the British took, took many, many casualties. And then to see him, um, uh, an object of an assassin, uh, the first uh, attempt to assassinate a president, not survive one, um, uh, you know, pistol snap, but two, uh, this seemed to, to, to suggest to some people that Andrew Jackson um, uh, had, had truly the blessings of God, that, uh, that, 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 that Jackson was, in a sense, uh, an immortal figure. Um, this, this gentleman, uh, he, um, uh, he, he, was, he was very quickly subdued. In fact, Jackson uh, had a cane with him and looked like he was eager to, to, to bash the man as well, whether with, you know, to protect himself or, or just out of some defiance. Um, uh, the man was taken away and uh, eventually declared to be insane and spent, uh, oh, I think about 25 years or so uh, in an asylum until his death in about the early 1860s. Near Memorial Day in the Saturday Wall Street Journal, you had a huge review. Uh, it took up almost uh, – it was on three different pages, but there's a big graphic of Andrew Jackson. Review written by Richard Norton Smith. What impact did that have on the sale of your book, and what did you think of the review? <laughs> um I love the review. I, I thought it was very, very generous. Um, I, I like the fact that um, uh, the reviewer um, uh, uh, told readers um, uh, uh, about the life of Andrew Jackson, but also the times. I thought it was a very uh, educational review. One, one, one could read a review like that and, uh, and, and quickly begin to, to understand um, uh, uh, both Jackson and his times. Um, as, as, as someone who, who, who also reads reviews, um, I, I'm always grateful when a reviewer in a relative economy of space can uh, can do that, can, can give me an education about an, an, an individual um, or, a, or a time period. And, and I think Richard Norton Smith uh, did that. Um, uh, about the sales, um, uh, I, I always have trepidation with sales, so um, I, I've not asked my, my agent <laughs> or my editor about sales. Professor Brown, why do you write books? I suppose because uh, I, I find the process of research and writing um, very, uh, very addictive. 
it's not what I expected to do. I, I thought that uh, I'd get my PhD and I would teach. But um, uh, in, in, in 2000, uh, I began to, to research and write uh, a book on Richard Hofstetter. And uh, since that time, I, I've never been without usually you know, balancing a, a couple of projects. Uh, obviously, they're in different places. But um, uh, I, I enjoy the process of researching. Um, I, I find uh, writing to be a, a terrific challenge. Um, putting down a first draft um, uh, is, uh, is, uh, is you know, just this, uh, this great chore. But I, I really like the, um, the subsequent drafts uh, to go back and, um, and, and put words in, take words out, uh, do a bit of painting. I usually go through maybe 12 or 15 drafts. Who was Richard Hofstetter? Why a book? Richard Hofstetter, uh, to my mind, was the most consequential American historian of the, the 20th century. Uh, I came to Hofstetter actually through a class on the Jacksonian period. Um, uh, Hofstetter had written a book on the rise of, um, uh, of really you know, a popular democracy uh, in America, uh, the rise of the party system. And um, uh, Hofstetter is a very accessible historian, um, still read today. And um, uh, there had not been a full biography of Hofstadter. Um, I, 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 think, I think I discovered that, you know, I, I'd read everything about Hofstadter that I could find. I'd read all of his work, and uh, I, th- I think I just woke up one day and I, I thought, you know, I, I'm interested enough. I'm going to try to write this man's biography. Why a book on F. Scott Fitzgerald? F. Scott Fitzgerald always interested me. Um, I, was, I was working on a project on Midwestern um, uh, historical thinking. And a lot of the research was in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. I spent a few summers there. And one of those summers, I, I, I drifted into a used bookstore, and I came across uh, a volume of Fitzgerald's letters. And I was very, very struck with these letters. They were, they were so candid, so raw. And it began to open up things uh, in my own mind uh, about, about um, his short stories. And his his novels, I could see connections there. Um, uh, I, I think his novel Tender is the Night is the first novel that really made sense to me, that, that really uh, kind of uh, affected me. And years later, to run across those letters and to, to begin to think about Fitzgerald, maybe in a more sophisticated way than I had as a student, um, that prompted me to to want to know more about him. So I, I started to, to, to do some of the research, not necessarily thinking I was going to write a book, but, but that became the product of the labor. Something happened to Andrew Jackson when he was president that no other president uh, had to deal with, some impeachment, but he was censured. Explain the circumstances and what is a censure compared to impeachment? Sure. So, you know, Jackson, um, he's known, among other things, for the bank war. The bank war was prolonged, and um, uh, uh, his opposition, the Whig Party, was very much opposed to his policy. There was a Whig majority in the Senate, but not in the House of Representatives. If there was a Whig majority in the House, Jackson very well could have been impeached, but there wasn't. So what the Senate did is to show its opposition to Jackson um, and his actions in regards to the bank, but I think more generally to, 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 to make the argument that Jackson was exceeding his, his, his powers as chief executive, that, that he really wasn't uh, a Democrat. He was an autocrat. Um, he, was, he was censored. Um, uh, uh, Henry Clay uh, from Kentucky, who was a, a great opponent of Jackson's, he kind of led this crusade. And um, uh, the, the argument was that, that, in fact, Jackson was acting unconstitutional, that he was taking uh, powers that belonged, whether it was to the courts or, or, or to Congress, and he was appropriating them for himself. True to form, uh, when the censor did pass, I think it was 26 to 20, uh, Jackson responded with a, a long communication um, put together by others uh, along with himself. And, uh, and Jackson defended his record, uh, and then Jackson made the claim that um, uh, he, more so than the courts, more so than the mere congressman, was really the, the defender, um, the representative of the people, because, because only the president, of course, has to um, you know, submit himself at that time to a national election. 
Well, to his opponents, that was the kind of claims that that, that the president was above Congress, that the president was above the courts, that, that they were so concerned about. You say in your book that Senator Benton, brother of Jesse Benton, who had put a bullet in his arm, who had nearly killed Jackson in a public brawl 20 years ago, proved to be his old adversary's chief defender. How did that mm-hmm. happen? Jackson got political aspirations, and Jackson realized that he needed to, to make friends. Jackson was in the Senate uh, uh, on two occasions, uh, one as a young man, and then a second time um, uh, uh, in the early 1820s uh, with presidential aspirations. Uh, he was on a committee. Uh, he was heading a committee, chairing a committee, and Benton was part of that committee. Um, Jackson sees Benton in the Senate, and he walks over, and um, uh, he uh, lets him know when the committee is going to be meeting, um, asks, asks about his family, and, and Benton's reply is, is cordial. Um, and, and so the, the two men begin to get along, and uh, uh, Benton will become uh, one of Jackson's great defenders uh, in Congress. Before we wrap it up, I have a couple of – one is not so minor, the other – if it was me, I wouldn't be very happy with it. But it, you you referred to something that I've never read before about Jackson, <clears throat> and that is he had a serious tooth problem. Hmm. Did he lose all his teeth? I believe he lost all of them. Um, Washington, you might know, had teeth problems as as, as well. And Adams. Um, uh, yeah, and Adams as well. Um, but, well, actually, I, I think most of them did. Uh, so Jackson was not uh, Jackson was not immune from that. Um, we, we, we talk about his behavior. We talk about the effect of having these bullets in the body. Uh, also, you know, Jackson had suffered from dysentery. Um, uh, his teeth were gone. Um, you know, th- this is somebody who who had carried uh, on military campaigns throughout the Southwest. Uh, as a, as, as a younger man, had lived in the field, um, uh, had, 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 had a very you know, um, um, uh, you know, thin frame to begin with. Um, uh, one, one wonders about you know, uh, his, uh, his, his dietary you know, intake um, you know, uh, on, on his campaigns uh, in the Creek War, the War of 1812. Um, uh, yes, Jackson's, Jackson's health. He lived a, he lived a long time. Um, but but his, his health was, uh, I think, always, well, in his adulthood, compromised. You wrote that he was $26,000 in debt compared to today's money. That's $935,000. Mm-hmm. What does that say about him? What it says is that although Jackson was, I, I think, rightly critical of the Bank of the United States um, for, um, uh, uh, for it, its, its lean towards uh, a speculative economy, that, that he himself, um, Jackson, an agrarian, not unlike Thomas Jefferson, an agrarian who was also who also died, you know, in debt. That um, uh, that, that 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 they were in some sense perhaps um, trapped by um, by their place, by their station. Um, you know, we 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 talked earlier about Jackson um, wanting to be perceived as as a gentleman. Well, gentlemen had certain things. A gentleman uh, had property. Uh, a gentleman had a plantation. Uh, a gentleman had um, uh, a fine uh, wardrobe, um, and and these things they cost money. Uh, Jackson was 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 living like a frontier aristocrat, and and Jackson was going deeply into debt to to fund this. Last question for you. You say in your book that historians are blinded by Jackson's commitment to the South. Mm. What do you mean? I think for a long time, um, uh, scholars would take Jackson uh, for his word that Jackson was um, a nationalist. Um, uh, his um, his uh, his stand against the the state of South Carolina in the nullification crisis, um, ensuring that that the, that the federal tariff was going to be paid. Um, the fact that he was an officer in the American uh, the American military. But if you look at that at that um, um, uh, nullification crisis, the upshot is that while South Carolina would agree that they would, in fact, the state would, in fact, pay the tariff, the tariff was going to be reduced 
um, dramatically uh, over a period of about nine years. Um, I also think of, 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 of Indian removal and uh, you know, the removal of about 60,000 self-governing Native Americans, um, some of, of, of whom did in fact own slaves, but most did not. And so by, by lowering the tariff, which helped industry, free labor, by removing Native Americans, mostly free labor, and bringing in a plantation culture in the Southwest, uh, one can make the argument that, 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 that Jackson's presidency, in fact, did prove to be uh, a big boon for, for the South. I wanted to say to our viewers again, if you're saying to yourself, why in the world didn't he ask about a lot of things? Uh, it's because it's a big book and you can buy it and read the whole thing. And we were just concentrating on a number of things. Jackson has been on C-SPAN so many times that uh, you could probably get a Ph.D. from reading and watching all of it. Um, where is Elizabeth Town, Pennsylvania? Elizabethtown, it's, it's, um, it's in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. And what, how far are you from Philadelphia? About 90 miles west of Philadelphia. And have you decided that you're going to write another book? And if so, what is it? Yeah, I, I'm working on a book on the Kansas-Nebraska Act and um, really the, 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 the issues of 1854 that the country was facing, the kind of, the kind of collapse of this compromised culture and uh, really the, but the, uh, the, the straight road from there to the American Civil War. Professor David S. Brown, thank you very much for joining us. The book is called The First Populist, The Defiant Life of Andrew Jackson. We appreciate uh, joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.